sign up for our church email list. I'll send it in the week. For now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, continuing our verse-by-verse study through this letter. Galatians chapter 5, and this morning we're going to look at verses 22 to 26 as we close out chapter 5. Just to give you a heads up, we have three more messages in Galatians. I'm almost done. Um, my notes tell me that this is number 20. I mean, I've really enjoyed this. This is now the longest sermon series I've ever done, which is great. Galatians chapter 5. To put this passage in its context, we're going to look at verses 22 to 26, but we're going to read together verses 13 to 26. So Galatians 5 and verses 13 to 26. If you're able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word? as we read this portion of scripture. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and reading through to verse 26. It's our custom here that we do responsive readings, so I will read the odd-numbered verses, and then I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. So I'll read verse 13, you read 14, and we'll do that to the end. Galatians chapter 5, then, and reading in verse 13. God's word says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Pray that God will add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let's pray, ask for God's help, and then we will study this passage together. Well, Heavenly Father, we give you praise for this gift of a day of worship, this sacred opportunity to gather as your people and to receive the gracious gift of encouragement and our walk with you. 
Father, we ask that as we open up the word of God, you would show us our need for you. Show us where we don't measure up and where we fall short. And Father, show us our supply in you as well. Show us the sufficiency of the scriptures. Show us the sufficiency of the spirit and all that he's done for us. And above all, Father, would we see the sufficiency of our Savior. Show us Christ in the word and may he be all satisfying to us. And Father, as we pray that for us this morning, we also pray that for Coram Deo Medford this morning. We pray for Pastor Brian as he continues preaching through Ephesians this morning and for the brothers and sisters there as they hear your word. Be with us now as we ask. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I've tagged our text this morning, walking in the divine nature, walking in the divine nature. And this morning, we come to the third part of our descent as we land the plane of our study in Galatians, thinking about the practical implications of life in the spirit, of what life in gospel liberty looks like. And... As we've been going through this kind of closeout series, uh, I've used the picture of a portrait to describe what Paul is doing in these verses. Paul is, as it were, painting the picture for us of what a life transformed by the liberty of the gospel looks like. So far in our little portrait, Paul's kind of painted his foundation layer in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5 as we've seen the importance of love among God's people, and that being the foundation of life in the Spirit. On top of that foundation, Paul built up another layer last week in verses 16 to 21, as we saw the whole reality of life as warfare for God's people, that our lives as Christians is characterized by warfare against the flesh, against the sinful nature. Well, this morning, Paul's going to add another layer to that portrait as he is developing for us the picture of what life in Christ looks like. This morning, he's going to add the reality that life in gospel liberty is life lived in the divine nature. Now, that phrase might sound a little weird, but in actuality, it comes right out of your Bible. Keep something in Galatians 5 and turn with me to 2 Peter. Peter's second letter, we read his first letter for our scripture reading. Second Peter, in chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one. Kind of the follow-up book to first Peter, whereas in first Peter, the threat that the believers were facing was external due to suffering. The threat in second Peter is internal. It's false teaching. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter says this. So 2 Peter 1, drop down to verse 3 with me. After saying once again that grace and peace should be multiplied to us through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, he says, His, referring to Jesus's, divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may, and here's what Peter says, you may share, some of your translations will say become partakers of, 
same idea, that you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Another way that the Bible talks about this idea of a new nature, which may be a little more familiar for some of you, is this idea of the new man or the new self. So you don't need to turn there, I'll read these to you, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, Paul says, but after talking about the way the Gentiles live, he says, verse 20, that's not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, verse 24, and to put on the new self. The one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Colossians 3.10 says, But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. When you became a Christian, the Bible teaches that you received a new nature. And it's not just a repair of the old one that you had. No, it's God's very nature. I didn't read it, but in 1 John, John describes it as God's seed that is now in us. Well, this morning, Paul's going to help us to learn about this divine nature that we've come to share in, this God kind of life, if you will. And he's going to do that by reminding us of what we all know as the fruit of the Spirit. But before we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, I need to take a step back, maybe a few steps back. And I need to put this passage, if you want to turn back to Galatians 5 with me, I need to put this passage in Galatians 5 in the context of God's grand story of redemption. So for a moment, go with me back to the Garden of Eden. When God created man, you remember, he put Adam in a garden. In fact, Genesis 2.15 tells us that Adam's job was to grow the garden, and not just to grow the garden, to expand it. Well, we know the story. Adam fell, and in his fall, the fruitfulness that Adam was supposed to bring about gets replaced, Genesis 3.17-19, it's replaced with thorns and thistles, where there was once fruit, there would now be that which frustrates fruit. Physically that happens, but more importantly, Romans chapter 5 tells us that Adam's nature became fallen, that he, in, he became sinful, and as his nature becomes fallen, we inherited that fallen nature. And so where there should have been fruit that glorified God, there is now the works of the sinful nature that we talked about in the last message. Well, the first Adam failed, and we inherited his fruitless, sinful nature. But the last Adam, our Lord Jesus, succeeds where Adam failed. Adam lead, led to fruitless works for his children, but Jesus, through his spirit, brings about spiritual fruitfulness in all who are joined to him. Adam is condemned to the works of his hands, but in Jesus, those who are united to him are not condemned to the works of their hands. 
they are commended to fruitfulness. Faith family, far from a theological abstraction, the fruit of the Spirit is God's work in those who belong to his Son. And this morning, as we think about the divine nature, as you know, I like to give every message a big idea. Here's this morning's big idea. Believers have received the divine nature, and that radically impacts how we live. Believers have received the divine nature, and it radically impacts how we live. You are not given the task of living the Christian life in your own ability. You're not given the task of living the Christian life in your own strength. Much rather, God has equipped you through his divine nature that he imparts to us. And that radically impacts, should be impacts, not imparts, how we live. This morning, I want to consider two facets of this divine nature and their impact on the believer's life. Paul gives us two facets to think about, two areas of this divine nature that have a radical impact on how we live as God's people. First of all, consider with me that the divine nature brings about definite marks. Verses 22 and 23. The divine nature brings about definite marks. The first facet of this new nature that we need to go with is that when this new nature is present, there are some definite signs that we can see. In contrast to the works of the flesh that we spent the end of our message last time considering, the fruits of the Spirit are the marks of this new nature. Now, did you notice that Paul doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit in our text? Did you catch that? He says the fruit of the Spirit, both in English and in the original language. It's singular. These signs of divine life, these proofs of life, as it were, they're a package deal. We as Christians don't get to say, oh, I'd like a little bit of this. Not part, uh, not so much. It's not like me. Um, I like salads. I like vegetables. I don't like avocados, which is really hard living on the West Coast because everyone loves them and you don't. <laughs> but it's not like going to someone's house and like they give me a salad and I can say, yeah, I'm going to just put all the avocados to the side. Usually I just give them to my wife. It's, like it's not like that. Uh, this is all of this being built up, being grown in the people of God. We don't get to pick and choose which of these we want to walk in. But did you also know that these are the fruit of the Spirit? That these are not something that we work up or we decide to generate or not. That the Spirit is the one who brings these about. That kind of leads me to my last observation before we get into the specifics. Did you notice also that these fruit of the Spirit are presented as indicatives, not imperatives? Uh, are we clear on what that means? But if not, give me 30 seconds. I've kind of explained this a few times in Galatians for those who are regulars. But in the Bible, there are imperatives. Those are commands, things that we are commanded to do. But also in God's Word, there are indicatives, statements about who we are. And we have to be careful to keep those two things the indicatives and the imperatives, distinct. 
if you start to kind of meld them together and turn indicatives into imperatives or turn imperatives into indicatives, that can wreak havoc on your Christian life. Our fathers in the faith used to call this the distinction between law and gospel. Law is what God commands of us. The gospel is what God does for us in Christ. And I would put it to you that there's a danger that when we come to a passage like Galatians chapter 5, which talks about these fruit of the Spirit, we turn these things which are indicatives into imperatives. I don't know about you, but I've heard sermons like that where people talk about the fruit of the Spirit and basically turn the fruit of the Spirit into a new law. So you must be loving. You must be joyful. You need to be peaceful. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul doesn't say that. Here's how one commentator noted the difference. Quote, it is important to observe that the fruit here described is not produced by a believer, but by the Holy Spirit working through a Christian who is in vital union to Christ. The word fruit is singular, indicating that these qualities constitute a unity, all of which should be found in a believer who lives under the control of the Spirit. In an ultimate sense, this fruit is simply the life of Christ lived out in a Christian. It also points to the way in which Christ is formed in a believer. I like that. That that idea that the fruit of the Spirit is the life of Christ manifest in those who are united to Christ by faith. And if that's the case, that makes them critical for us to understand. If these are the marks of the divine nature in the life of a Christian, well, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us nine fruits, or nine aspects of this one fruit, I should say. And to kind of make them easier to get our heads on, I put them into three categories. First of all, this divine nature that we receive, it produces a life of God-mindedness. A life of God-mindedness. So Paul starts off, see that there in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, number one, love, number two, joy, number three, Peace. The first three of these spirit-developed virtues have to do with our relationship as it relates to God. Our relationship to God. So he begins and he says love. Love here is not the warm, gooey feeling that our culture likes to talk about and refer to as love. No, love is a bit more concrete when you read the Bible. As one Marian put it, it's the quality of warm regard for interest in, or interest, excuse me, in others. This is the kind of love, the word that's used here, is the kind of love that God is said to be in himself, First John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says that God is love. This is God's kind of love that he has, and he produces it in the heart of the believer. Biblical love, as we understand the scriptures, is an objective, sacrificial expression of care for others. And Paul would have us to understand that first and foremost, that's directed towards God. As we love God, then we are able to rightly love one another. So first off, he says love. Secondly, he says 
joy. He says joy. Joy is often confused with happiness, and they're not the same thing. I, I think that a great deal of damage has been done in some evangelical circles by insisting that if you're a Christian, you have to be happy all the time. As you know, I'm very fond of saying, make it make sense to me. Because I read passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, where Paul can say that he lived life as grieving, yet rejoicing. How is it that Paul was able to simultaneously grieve, yet rejoice? Well, I put it to you that joy is something a little higher and a little more substantial than just circumstantial happiness. Before my definition of joy, I heard a preacher say this years ago, and it stuck with me. That joy is a supernatural delight in the plans, purposes, and people of God. That is a delight in everything that God finds delight in, that he gives to his people. That's why Paul can say, yes, in my physical circumstance, I'm grieving. And yet, when I know that God is working in the midst of this circumstance, I can rejoice. If we boil it down to just mere happiness, we're going to have a lot of people who, number one, are just not honest about where they are in their lives. Some of you have heard me say that, you know, I, uh, coming from the UK, I was used to being around Christians who had what some people might call a swag, sickly weak evangelical grin. My pastor used to call it that, and it stuck with me. You know, the kind of plastered-on smile that Christians are supposed to have all the time, even though life is hard. And if we're honest, we're on the verge of tears sometimes. Oh, no, no, you can't bring that to church. The joy of the Lord is your strength, token, taken completely out of context. No, actually, this is a delight that God gives that rises above circumstances. It rises above what we're going through. It's the result of the Spirit's ministry that gives us pleasure in who God is. Paul says love, joy, and then he says peace. Peace, I love how MacArthur puts it in his commentary, is the tranquility of mind that comes from a relationship with God. Because Romans 5.1, I know that I've been justified by faith. I now have peace with God. That I know that in my relationship with God, I have there's no enmity between God and I. That reconciliation has taken place. And because reconciliation has taken place, I can know that no matter what else is going wrong around me, my relationship with God is good. So Paul begins and he says, love, joy, peace, and as I noted, these are the life of Christ manifested in a believer, which means they find their perfect fulfillment, not in us, but in Christ. Christ is the full revelation of God's love. It was John Calvin who said that the cross is the theater of the love of God. That if you want to see the love of God played out on a broad scale, look no further than the cross. Jesus was the picture of joy in God, even in the worst of circumstances. So Hebrews 12 will tell us that he was willing for the joy that was set before him to go to the cross. 
Ephesians 2.15 and 16 tells us that Jesus doesn't just make peace. Ephesians 2.15, he is our peace. The Spirit produces a life of God-mindedness. Secondly, the Spirit produces a life of other-centeredness. The Spirit produces a life of other-centeredness. The next cluster of this spiritual crop relates not to our relationship to God, but now our relationship to others. Whereas, did you, think, did you catch this last week when we looked at the works of the flesh? If not, just read 19 to 21. Did you notice that all of those things turn us inward? I'm yet to meet somebody who is given over to the works of the flesh, who actually cares about anybody else. Not possible. Why? Because all of those things are designed to turn inward on you. It's all about you. The big I, the small you. However, the Spirit, when He's present in the life of the believer, helps us to see other people with new eyes. And so the next three in our list go on. Patience, number four. Kindness, number five. Goodness, number six. Patience. Literally the idea of being long to anger. I grew up on the King James Version, as some of you know. The King James Version translates this as long-suffering. Or as my dad used to say, long-suffering. It was his way when we were kids of explaining to us the reality of this is the kind of person who can just endure for a long time. It's the ability to keep on taking the worst injuries and insults. On the flip side of that is kindness. It's an unusual word in Greek. It carries the idea of tender concern for others, specifically the kind of concern that is willing to put oneself at disadvantage for another person. Now, that would be especially relevant if I could pause for a moment. You remember the Galatians were having some relational problems? We picked that up, Galatians 5.15. Seems like some relational problems had crept into the body. Paul points out that, listen, part of the work of the Spirit and the life of the Christian is he helps us to have tender concern for others. Rather than biting and devouring one another, we want to help and heal one another. Patience, kindness, goodness. Some of your translations will have that as meekness. Mm, that kind of works. There's another word for that, which we'll see in a moment. It's more the idea here of moral and spiritual excellence in relationship to others. That as believers, we carry ourselves in the kind of way where we sh demonstrate excellence in our beliefs behavior towards one another, in our relationships with one another, in the way we talk about one another, the way in which we interact with one another, if we are in the world of business, how we do business with one another, or even with non-Christians, how we communicate, how we talk, how we engage, all of that comes under this rubric of goodness, this moral and spiritual excellence that the Spirit brings about. Before I, before I move on, can I can I, can I park the bus for just a moment in our sermon? Uh, we live in an age that prizes selfishness above all else. We live in an age that prizes self-centeredness. We will do anything, provided there's some benefit to us. Rather than putting other people first, 
and putting the benefits of others first, our culture more than ever puts more emphasis on self than other people. And unfortunately, at times, that whole mindset finds its way into church. And so you will encounter people. I've encountered them over the years. I'm sure many of you have, if you've been around believers any length of time. Everything in their spiritual life doesn't revolve around other people. It revolves around, what's the benefit for me? What do I get out of this? And here's the reality. If that's how we live, we have to start questioning, is the spirit at work in such a person or not? I don't think it's our job to go around examining every person trying to see, is this person really a Christian or not? Ultimately, it's God who knows that. But as Jesus tells us, you know a tree by its fruit. And if the fruit of our so-called spirituality makes us more self-centered and everything is about us and our happiness and not how can we serve others, Something is distinctly wrong. We need to take pause and ask for a second, okay, what's going on here? I carry on. I've got lots more that we need to get through. The Spirit produces a life of God-mindedness, produces a life of other-centeredness. Thirdly, actually I've got one more thing I need to say on this point. One more thing. I was almost done, but there's one more thing I need to say. Can I put it to you? This just came to me. This was not in my notes, so bear with me. Can I put it to you that the problem may be for a Christian who truly is a Christian, who truly knows the laws. I'm not saying they're not a Christian, but they've become rather curved in on self, to use the language of the reformers. Could the problem be that the selfish Christian is a forgetful Christian? Could the problem be that the selfish Christian has forgotten the selfless love of God that's shown to them in the gospel? Could it be that they've forgotten that, hold on, God didn't hold back, God didn't put his needs first in saving you and I. Yes, he did it for his glory, absolutely, but God is the only person on the planet who gets to put himself first. But in doing so, God went above and beyond. He took the best that he had, his own son, Turn me to first John. Kind of going off road just a little bit here. First John chapter four. Then you get the jump down to verse seven. First John chapter four and verse seven. We read verses one through three to start our service this morning. Jump down to verse seven. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For because love is from God, and everyone who has been born of everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Can I put it to you that the way in which we put to death the kind of impulse of a selfish spirituality is to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in the gospel.
after all, in Christ, God showed us incredible patience. In Jesus, the kindness and the generosity of God was put on full display, gave the best that he had. And in the Son, we see God's goodness shown to us with no filter. There's more I'd like to say, but I need to keep it moving. The Spirit produces a life of God-mindedness, other-centeredness. Thirdly, the Spirit produces a life of inner godliness. The Spirit produces a life of inner godliness. The, the, the final cluster that Paul describes deals with the work of the Spirit in relation to ourselves. So we've dealt with our relationship with God. We've dealt with our relationship with others. And now we deal with in relation to ourselves. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is, number seven, faithfulness, number eight, gentleness, number nine, self-control. Faithfulness, literally the word for faith. It's the same word for faith. It carries the idea here, though, not of faith as in the act of believing, but integrity of life and speech, the fact that there is a consistency between word and deed. The Spirit works in us to become more and more consistent people that our profession matches up with the way in which we live. He also says gentleness. The famed grammarian R.C. Trent says that this word doesn't consist only in a person's outward behavior, nor yet in his relations to his fellow men. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul. And the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. This word gentleness also could be, I think, we could think of this in terms of contentment. One of the greatest books, if you've never read it, I thoroughly encourage you to get a copy. Jeremiah Burroughs' little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If the thought of reading a Puritan author sounds kind of harsh, there is a modern rewrite of the book called The Secret of Contentment by William Barclay, Presbyterian pastor. And in that book, the definition they give of content, both those authors, well, Barclay borrowing from Burroughs, the definition that he gives of contentment has always stuck with me. That is that sweet and gracious frame of spirit that accepts God's hand in every circumstance. It's the humble and gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense. It's patiently submissive in every moment where we could think to ourselves, mm, I don't like that and I feel the need to respond to that. That humble and gentle attitude that's present at all times while being free of any desire for revenge, retribution, or self getting its own way. Finally, Paul says self control. Self control, literally, possessing mastery over self, uh, possessing power over self. It's the ability to hold oneself in check. And again, in our lives, the manifestations of these are always going to be imperfect. And so we can't use ourselves as the example of this. Again, we have to look at Jesus as the example of these. 
Well, was Jesus a faithful person? Well, yeah, Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Jesus was faithful in all his house. And everything that was committed to him by God. Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus was the sum of self-control. Never giving in to temptation, even at his most vulnerable. Even as he goes into the wilderness, and as he goes into the wilderness, he is tempted by the adversary. He goes into that temptation. Yes, tempted, truly tempted. And yet not giving in. Ultimately, the marks of this divine nature are all embodied, not in our imperfect obedience, but in Jesus' perfect obedience. Again, where the first Adam failed in being fruitful, the second Adam succeeded, and then some. Okay, Kofi, that's great. That was wonderful. I feel like I understand the fruit of the Spirit now. Okay, where do I fit in with any of this? But if you're here today and you're a believer, the Spirit is bringing about all of this in you. Remember, these are the most of the divine nature. The Spirit produces this as we give ourselves to the means that he's provided. Christians often wonder, like, okay, why am I not growing in my faith? What, what can I do to promote growth in my own spiritual life? And oftentimes we're tempted to think it's through this new method or this, that secret thing over here or this new discipline or that, or I need someone to do this or do that. Can I point to you that God has actually given us everything we need to nourish our faith? Some of you have gathered of late, I talk a lot about this concept of the means of grace. As our fathers in the faith said, these outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his body the benefits of his work. And so he gives us his word. He gives us prayer. He gives us baptism and the Lord's table. These means of nourishing our faith. Our fathers in the faith also said that these things were made effective to God's chosen people for their salvation. The word, the table, baptism, prayer. These are the rich and fertile soil in which the Lord grows these fruit in us. That's why we give ourselves to the reading and hearing of God's word. It's not because we want to fill time in a service. It's precisely because we want to hear as much of God's word as we can. That's why we give time to the Lord's table, by the way, in the new year, we're going to be moving to observing it weekly. More on that to come. That's why we give time to baptism. We give time to personal prayer and corporate prayer as a body. These are all the means by which God graciously grows the fruit of the Spirit in us. This is the kind of life that Paul says, verse 23, that the law is not against such things. <laughs> sure, laws can tell you what to do, but only the Spirit can produce this. And when the Spirit produces these, the law can't argue against it. So the divine nature brings about definite marks. I spent most of my time here because this is the most important section. The next three we'll move through quite quickly. Secondly, the, the, the divine nature brings about definite change. Not only are there definite marks of this divine nature, but there's definite change that results. Verses 24 through 26. Like I said, we're going to move kind of quickly through this last section. Not only does the Spirit 
working us at a heart level, but what is happening on a heart level then manifests itself in how we act as God's people. Real quickly, I've got three changes I want to point out. First of all, there's a definite change in how we view sin. A definite change in how we view sin. Verse 24, Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, if you're here and you're a believer, that's you. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because we belong to Jesus, because we've been justified by faith, because we've been united to Christ, because all of that has happened, we are able to crucify the flesh. Now, technical moment for just a moment. So, uh, some people take this when it says, have crucified the flesh. Well, this is something that God does. But that doesn't really, it doesn't really work here. Paul has talked about this as a passive event. Remember back in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Passive. The original language here, though, isn't passive, it's active. This is something that the believer is called to do. The believer has been crucified, and yet we have a role in crucifying the flesh as well. Last week in the message, I, men I mentioned John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin, the book that he preached in chapel services to the college students over there at Oxford. Allow me for a moment to share a little bit of Owen's wisdom with you, because it may be a taste, maybe you want to go pick up the book after we're done. Turn me to Romans chapter 8. As you think about this whole idea of crucifying the flesh, I think Owen's got some really helpful insights we can borrow from for just a second. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live to the flesh, obligated to the flesh, excuse me, to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Owen began his series of sermons with just five basic observations. It was kind of a classic Puritan thing. They would take a text, lift some observations, and that would form the basis for their series. First of all, Owen says that there is a duty that is prescribed to every Christian. So the duty, he notes, is that we are to, and he reads from the King James Version, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Our translation that we have here says, you have to put to death the deeds of the body. Same thing. That putting sin to death is a command. It is not optional for the Christian. It's required. Secondly, he says that there are certain people to whom this duty is prescribed. So, Catch it there in the text. He says, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh, verse 12, verse 13, but if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Believers are commanded to do this, not unbelievers. Thirdly, he says that there is a promise that is connected to this. You catch that there at the end of verse 13? That if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Owen is very careful to say, this is not a do this so that you can live. It's do this so that you can enjoy the fullness of life in Christ. I think I've talked about this in our series in Galatians so far. The difference between our union with God and our communion with him. That our union with God, God takes care of all of that. There's nothing we can do to affect that. But we can affect our communion. And that's what Owen says. 
Paul has in view here. Fourth, he says the, there's a means by which we do this. So did you catch that? He says, verse 4, 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the Christian doesn't do this in their own strength. It's not, okay, um, got to kind of grit my teeth and get through this because I really like doing this stuff. But I know I have to, so I'm just going to try my best. That's not what Paul's got. No, this is a work the Spirit does in us. He energizes and empowers this. Finally, Owen notes that there's an element of conditionality to all this. Where, okay, there are means that we have to apply ourselves to. There are promises we have to claim. He notes that from the simple fact that Paul, two times, uses this language of if. You have to apply yourself to the means of grace that God provides. We have to avail ourselves of God's promises. And Owen's point is that when we think of all these five things together, we are given the tools that we need to put sin to death. I'd argue that here in Romans 8, Paul puts, and in Galatians 5, where he says we've crucified the flesh, Paul describes for us the great paradox that is the Christian life. That God has done all that we need for us to be united to him. And yet through his spirit, he calls us to participate in the language of John Piper, to act out the miracle that God has brought about. And again, it's just all too easy to get imbalanced when we talk about this. Either it's all God and we're just passive in this process, or it's all me. God did his part and now it's time for me to pull my socks up and work harder. That's, neither of those are true. The miracle of the Christian life is that God energizes us through his spirit for the work of putting sin to death. Not only is there a definite change in how we view sin, secondly, there's a definite change in how we live. So verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I pointed this out a few times in our study of Galatians, but the if here is not the kind of way we use if, where it's, eh, it might, it might not. No, this is, remember, technical term, first class condition. In other words, if and you do. It's not that some Christians live by the Spirit, and then you've got poor Christian over here who kind of lives by himself. It's not that there is some other event that needs to take place to move a Christian from living by themselves to living by the Spirit. No, the implication is if you're a Christian, you live by the Spirit right now. Sure, you might need a few walking lessons. We all do. But that's who you are. And since that is true, Paul takes it up a notch. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary, puts it like this, that walking by the Spirit is the outward manifestation in action and speech of living by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit is the root. Walking by the Spirit is the fruit. And that fruit is nothing less than the practical reproduction of the character and therefore the conduct of Christ in the lives of his people. I wish I had more time. I take some verses where Paul talks about this language of walking all over the place. I'm already well over my time, so I'm going to try and condense a little bit. But can I, just put, can I just put this to you? That this definite change in the way we live that we see here in Galatians chapter 5, 
that this definite change in who we are is not designed to frighten us. When Paul says that we should keep in step with the Spirit, this is not supposed to be God's way of piling more misery on us for failing in the Christian life. Rather, this is God's loving encouragement to his children to enjoy life as he desires it for his people. A definite change in how we view sin. A definite change in how we live. Finally, this morning, a definite change in how we relate to others. Paul kind of brings it full circle. Verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, literally boastful, provoking one another, envying one another. The Spirit works in us the desire not to be boastful, not to parade ourselves as it were. He works in us a desire, as one commentator put it, to set va- to not, excuse me, set value on things that are not really valuable. For a moment, think up with me about why it is as human beings we feel the need to boast. Is it because it makes us feel better about ourselves? Is it because? It makes us feel better about ourselves in comparison to somebody else. You know, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. Is it because we are victims of a culture that preaches to us a false gospel of personal self-esteem and thinking highly of yourself? Whatever the reason is, can I put it to you that I'm incredibly glad that the gospel liberates us from the need to boast? I mean, think about this from a Christian perspective. If we're boasting because it makes us feel better about ourselves, well... The gospel precisely teaches us that outside of Christ, fallen humanity doesn't really have a reason to feel good about itself. Well, maybe we boast because we compare ourselves to someone else. Well, the gospel eliminates all ground of comparison because you didn't earn it. Remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, not many wise, not many noble, consider your calling. You weren't the best, you weren't the brightest, you weren't the richest. But God chose the things that in the world's eyes are foolish. You're in the family of God for the same reason as the person next to you. So if that's the case, this is the teaching of the New Testament, how can you compare yourself to somebody else? Well, as for self-esteem, well, the Bible's pretty clear, Philippians 3.1, that God's people are those who don't place any confidence in the flesh. Romans 12.3, they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought. Why? Because any value that we have, we recognize, comes from him. Not from us. The gospel removes any and all need to boast and by doing so provoke one another and envy one another. Whether it's actively making people feel lesser than us or passively kind of looking at what people have and saying, "Mm, why does he have that? I should have that, not him. beloved, as I, as I land the plane this morning, I'm done. As I land the plane this morning, isn't it so easy for us to get boastful? Isn't it easy for us to kind of self-elevate? To kind of think, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I haven't eaten all week because I had dental surgery. Sliced bread sounds pretty good right now. It's probably the greatest thing there is. But we all like to think that sliced bread, I'm, better than, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. 
It's easy to look down our nose at others and think that we're better. But can I put it to you that the struggle against that kind of boasting is only able to be conquered because we have the spirit who dwells within us. And that struggle against boasting is communal as much as it is individual. We are all brothers and sisters who are here who know the Lord Jesus, partakers of the divine nature. God has been faithful to give us all that we need to enjoy life in him to the full. And Father, we are grateful that you have indeed given us everything we need to enjoy life in you. Father, we recognize that this walk in the divine nature is lifelong. Yeah. This is not a matter of perfection. It's not as though we are going to one day rise to a height of perfection where this will n- we will never struggle, where we will never fail. But Father, we thank you that we live out of our relationship with you, not to earn a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would apply ourselves to the means that you have given to generate the fruit of the Spirit. And that as your Spirit works in us, we would see those definite changes in how we view sin and how we view others and how we view ourselves. Ultimately, may Jesus be the overriding feature of our lives, his work for us and his work in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.